Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. That last book. Yeah, I didn't think a children's book would do that to me. And I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, Tears, there's nothing wrong with Tears. Tears is a great reset. It's a great reboot. Like, it, you need Tears. They're cleansing. But I don't like it. I don't like the surprise of death. You know. It makes me think about the people that I've lost. And I spoke on it. At the end of the last book, so I'm not going to speak on it again, but, um, yeah, I, I think also, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about it, also, my brother lost a friend who uh, drowned, and that always resonated with me because my brother was my hero, so when he was 15, his friend passed, which made me like... 12 or 11 and to sit there and watch my brother with these soul altering cries and sobs that shook me to my core and it never left but anyway I'm not looking backwards at that book um, it was a great book y'all should check it out um, but we are moving forward to the good classic my mom's a reader that's where I get it from. Like like I said before, we used to sit down with hot chocolate and jazz in the rainy uh, city of Tacoma, Washington and read books in the front room while the fireplace popped. And it was just wonderful. Um, and so as I got older, I realized that while I couldn't afford all the books that I wanted, I could always go to my mom's library and just steal them. Borrow them. She knew I had them until I moved out the house and took like 30 of them with me. One of the books that I borrowed on one of my visits was a book by James Patterson called The Jester. And um, when I first opened it up, I wasn't expecting a lot of things. I think it was my first time really dealing with James Patterson uh, outside of a few Alex Cross novels. Um, and so when I opened this book up, I was mesmerized. I think that's the best way to put it. I was mesmerized and I don't want to put too much on it because y'all may not feel the way that I feel, but you know what? I'm going to put it on it. Cause even if you don't feel the way that I feel, I still feel that way. My feelings are still valid. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I am certain that some of y'all will love this book. It is another novel, so it is going to take us probably into uh, our book in October, which is fine, because the book that I have in October is perfect for Halloween. Um, if you haven't already, go back and listen to Dark Corner as well. That was a excellent, excellent Halloween book that we did last year. I don't know why we say we. It's just I. I said I don't know why we say we. It's, it's the personalities that I have in my head. Like I said, I am a walking book club by myself. Anyhow, The Jester, a novel by James Patterson and Andrew Gross. I'm not going to say too much about that. All I'm going to say is that James Patterson either A, 
lent his name to help a lot of people become legitimate or B, he just put his name on a lot of people's books. Either or. But as it is, the books always turn out to be pretty fantastic, so I'm not mad about it at all. With that said, The Jester. Prologue. The Find. Wearing a brown tweed suit and his customary dark tortoiseshell sunglasses, Dr. Alberto Mazzini pushed through a crowd of loud and agitated reporters, blocking the steps of Musée de Histoire and Boré. Can you tell us about the artifact? Is it real? Is that why you're here? A woman pressed, shoving a microphone marked CNN in his face. Have tests been performed on the DNA? Dr. Mazzini was already annoyed. How had the press jackals been alerted? Nothing had even been confirmed about the find. He weighed out the reporters and camera operators. This way, doctor, one of the museum aides instructed. Please, come inside. A tiny, dark-haired woman in a black pantsuit was waiting for Mazzini inside. She looked to be in her mid-forties and appeared to almost curtsy in the presence of this prestigious guest. Thank you for coming. I'm Rene Lacaz, the director of the museum. I tried to control the press, but she shrugged. They smell a big story. It is as if we found an atom bomb. If the artifact you found turns out to be authentic, Mazzini said flatly, you will have found something far greater than a bomb. As the national director of the Vatican Museum, Alberto Mazzini had lent the weight of his authority to every important find of religious significance that had been unearthed over the past 30 years. The etched tablets presumed to be from the disciple John dug up in western Syria. The first Vericot Bible, both now rested amongst the Vatican treasures. He had also been involved in the investigation of every hoax, hundreds of them. Rene Lacaz led Mazzini along the narrow 15th century hall, inlaid with heraldic tile. You say the relic was unearthed in a grave, Mazzini asked. A shopping mall, Lacaz smiled. Even in downtown Beret, the construction goes night and day. The bulldozers dug up what must have once been a crypt. We would have completely missed it had not a couple of sarcophagi split open. Miss Lacaz escorted her important guests into a small elevator and then up to the third floor. The grave belonged to some long-forgotten duke who died in 1098. We did acid and photoluminescence tests immediately. Its age looks right. At first we wondered, why would a precious relic from a thousand years earlier, and half a world away, be buried in an 11th century grave? And what did you find? Mazzini asked. It seems our duke actually went to fight in the Crusades. We know he sought out the relics from the time of Christ. They finally arrived at her office. I advise you to take a breath. You're about to behold something truly extraordinary. The artifact lay on a plain white sheet on an examiner's table, as humble as such a precious thing could be. Mazzini finally removed his sunglasses. He didn't have to hold his breath. It was completely taken away. My God, this is an atom bomb. Look closely. There's an inscription on it. The Vatican director bent over it. Yes, it could be. It had all the right markings. There was an inscription in Latin. He squinted close to read. Acre, Galilee, 
He examined the artifact from end to end. The age fit. The markings. It also corresponded to descriptions in the Bible. Yet, how did it come to be buried here? All this, it does not really prove anything. That's true, of course. Rene Lacaz shrugged. But, Doctor, I am from here. My father's from the valley, my father's father, and his. There have been stories here for hundreds of years, long before this grave tumbled open. Stories every school child in Bore was raised on. That this holy relic was here, in Bore, 900 years ago. Mazzini has seen a hundred purported relics like this, but the tremendous power of this one gripped and unnerved him. A reverent force gave him the urge to kneel on the stone floor. Finally, that's what he did, as if he were in the presence of Jesus Christ. I waited until your arrival to place a call to Cardinal Peralt in Paris, said Lacaz. Forget Peralt. Mazzini looked up, moistening his dry lips. We are going to call the Pope. Alberto Mazzini couldn't take his eyes off the incredible artifact on the plain white sheet. This was more than just a crowning moment of his career. It was a miracle. There's just one more thing, said Miss Lacaz. What? Mazzini mumbled. What one more thing? The local lore. It always said a precious relic was here. Just never that it belonged to a duke, but to a man of far more humble origins. What sort of low-born man would come in at such a prize? A priest? Perhaps a thief? No. Rene Lacaz's brown eyes widened. Actually, a jester. Part 1. The Origins of Comedy Chapter 1. Veil du Père, a village in southern France, 1096. I'm going to ruin the names of these cities. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I hope y'all don't either. It ain't like y'all visiting them. I went to France once. Yeah. <laughs> Study French, too. I thought I was all ready for it. You know what my French taught me? That I don't know French. Also, that I know how to order a donut. It's a beignet. You're welcome. I got my wife a uh, Tickle Me Elmo to speak French. I have no idea what happened to it. Bought it at Walmart. They have Walmarts in France. It's pretty fetch. The church bells were ringing. Loud, quickening peals. Echoing through town in the middle of the day. Only twice before had I heard the bell sounded at midday. In the four years since I had come to live in this town. Once, when word reached us that the king's son had died. And the second when a raiding party from our lord's rival in Digne swept through town during the wars, leaving eight dead and burning almost every house to the ground. What was going on? I rushed to the second floor window of the inn I looked after with my wife, Sophie. People were running into the square, still carrying their tools. What's going on? Who needs help? they shouted. Then Antoine, who farmed a plot by the river, galloped over the bridge aboard his mule, pointing back towards the road. They're coming! They're almost here! From the east, I heard the loudest chorus of voices, seemingly raised as one. I squinted through the trees and felt my jaw drop. Jesus, I'm dreaming, I said to myself. A peddler with the cart was considering an event here. I blinked at the sight, not once, but twice. It was the greatest multitude I had ever seen. 
jammed along the narrow road in the town, stretching out as far as the eye could see. Sophie, come quick, now, I yelled. You're not going to believe this. My wife of three years hurried to the window, her yellow hair pinned up for the work day under a white cap. Mother of God, Hugh. It's an army, I muttered, barely able to believe my eyes. The army of the crusade. Chapter 2 Even in Vail de Père, word had reached us of the Pope's call. We had heard the masses of men were leaving their families, taking the cross as nearby as Avignon. And here they were, the army of crusaders marching through Vail de Père. But what an army! More of a rabble, like one of those multitudes prophesizing Isaiah or John. Men, women, children, carrying clubs and tools straight from home, and it was vast. Thousands of them, not fitted out with armor or uniforms, but shabbily, with red crosses either painted or sewn on the plain tunics. And at the head of this assemblage, not some trumped-up duke or king in crested mail and armor sitting imperiously atop a massive charger, but a little man in a homespun monk's robe, barefoot, bald, with a thatched crown, plopped atop a simple mule. It is their awful scene that the Turks will turn and run from, I said, shaking my head. Not their swords. Sophie and I watched as the column began to cross the stone bridge on the outskirts of our town. Young and old, men and women, some carrying axes and mallets and old swords, some old knights parading in rusty armor, carts, wagons, tired mules and plow horses, thousands of them. Everyone in town stood and stared. Children ran out and danced around the approaching monk. No one had ever seen anything like it before. Nothing ever happened here. I was struck with a kind of wonderment. Sophie, tell me, what do you see? What do I see? Either the holiest army I've ever seen or the dumbest. In either way, it's the worst equipped. But look, not a noble anywhere. Just common men and women. Like us. Below us, the vast column wound into the main square, and the queer monk at his head turned his mule to a stop. A beard at night helped him slide off. Father Leo, the town's priest, went up to greet him. The singing stopped. Weapons and packs were laid down. Everyone in our town was pressed around the tiny square to listen. I am called Peter the Hermit. The monk said in a surprisingly strong voice, urged by his holiness urban to lead an army of believers to the Holy Land to free the Holy Sepulchre from the heathen hordes. Are there any believers here? He was pale and long-nosed, resembling his mount, and his brown robes had holes in them, threadbare. Yet, as he spoke, he seemed to grow, his voice rising in power and conviction. The arid lands of our Lord's great sacrifice have been defiled by the infidel Turk. Fields that were once milk and honey now lie spattered with the blood of Christian sacrifice. Churches have been burned and looted, sainted sites destroyed, the holiest treasures of our faith, the bones of saints have been fed to dogs. Cherished vials filled with drops of the Savior's own blood, poured in the heaps of dung like spoiled wine. I'm not going to get into the whole Crusades thing and who was right and who was wrong. I'm not going to get into the whole thing about how kings and priests led holy war upon unknown 
thousands of people, millions of people maybe. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not going to go into it because it's just a part of the story. What I do know is separation of church and state would have caused all this to stop. Also, Jesus didn't co-sign this war. That's another thing I'm going to say. Also, also, just another thing of uh, white people going into other people's stuff and stealing stuff that they feel is theirs. That's it. I'm done. And a lot of propaganda. Okay, I'm done. Join us, many from the ranks called out loudly. Kill the pagans and sit with the Lord in heaven. For those who come, the monk named Peter went on, for those who put aside their earthly possessions and join our crusade, His Holiness Urban promises unimaginable rewards, riches, spoils, and honor in battle, His protection for your families who dutifully remain behind, an eternity in heaven at the feet of our grateful Lord, and most of all, freedom, freedom from all servitude upon your return. Who will come, brave souls? The monk reached out his arms, his invitation almost irresistible. Shouts of acclamation rose throughout the square. People I had known for years shouted, I, I will come. I saw Matt, the miller's oldest son, just 16, throw up his hands and hug his mother. And John, the smith, who could crush iron in his hands, kneel and take the cross. Several other people, some of them just boys, ran to get their possessions, then merged with the ranks. Everyone was shouting, De La Vute. God wills it. My own blood surged. What a glorious adventure awaited. Riches and spoils picked up along the way. A chance to change my destiny in a single stroke. I felt my soul spring alive. I thought of gaining our freedom and the treasures I might find on the crusade. For a moment, I almost raised my hand and called out, I will come. I will take the cross. Then I felt Sophie's hand pressing on mine. I lost my tongue. Then the procession started up again. The ranks of farmers, masons, bakers, maids, whores, jongleurs, and outlaws hoisting their sacks and makeshift weapons, swelling in song. The monk Peter mounted his donkey, blessed the town with a wave, and then pointed east. I watched him with a yearning I thought had long been put behind me. I had traveled in my youth. I had been brought up by Goliards, students and scholars who entertained from town to town. And there was something I had missed from those days. Something my life in Vail de Pure had still but not completely put aside. I missed being free. And even more than that, I wanted freedom for Sophie and the children we would have one day. Chapter 3 Two days later, other visitors came through our town. There was a ground-shaking rumble from the west, followed by a cloud of gravel and dust. Horsemen were coming in at a full gallop. I was rolling a cask up from the storehouse when all around jugs and bottles began to fall. Panic clutched in my heart. What flashed in my mind was a devastating raid by marauders just two years before. Every house in the village had been burned or sacked. There was a shriek and then a shout. Children playing ball in the square dived out the way. Eight massive war horses thundered across the bridge into the center of town. On their huge mounts, I saw knights wearing the purple and white colors of Baldwin and Trail, our liege lord. The party of horsemen pulled to a stop in the square. I recognized the knight in charge as Norcross, our liege lord Shadowland, his military chief. 
He scanned our village from atop his mountain, remarked loudly, This is Vale du Père? It must be, my lord, a companion knight replied with an exaggerated sniff. We were told to ride east until the smell of shit, and then head directly for it. Their presence here could only signal harm. I began to make my way slowly towards the square with my heart pounding. Anything might happen. Where was Sophie? Norcross dismounted, and the others did the same, their chargers snorting heavily. The Shadowland had dark, hooded eyes that flashed only a sliver of light, like an eighth moon, a trace of a thin, dark beard. I bring greetings from your Lord Baldwin, he said for all to hear, stepping into the center of the square. Word has reached him that a rabble passed through here a day ago, some babbling hermit at the head. As he spoke, his knights began to fan out through town. They pushed aside women and children, sticking their heads in the houses as if they owned them. Their haughty faces read, Get out of my way, pieces of shit. You have no power. We can do anything we want. Your lord asked me to impress upon you, Norcross declared, his hope that none of you were swayed by the ravings of that religious crank. His brain's the only thing more withered than his dick. Now I realized what Norcross and his men were doing here. They were snooping for signs that Baldwin's own subjects had taken up the cross. Norcross strutted around the square, his small eyes moving from person to person. It is your Lord Baldwin who demands your service, not some moth-eaten hermit. It is pledged and honor-bound to him. Next to his, the post protection is worthless. I finally caught sight of Sophie, hurrying from the well with her bucket. Beside her was the miller's wife, Marie, and their daughter, Amy. I motioned with my eyes for them to stay clear of Norcross and his thugs. Father Leo spoke up. On the fate of your soul, knight, the priest said, stepping towards him, do not defame those who now fight for God's glory. Do not compare the Pope's holy protection to yours. It is blasphemy. Frantic shouts rang out. Two of Norcross's knights returned to the square, dragging Georges the Miller and his young son Aloe by the hair. They threw both into the middle of the square. I felt a hole in the pit of my stomach. Somehow they knew. Norcross seemed delighted, actually. He went and cupped the face of the cowering boy in his massive hand. The Pope's protection, you say, eh, priest? He chuckled. Why don't we see what his protection is truly worth? Chapter 4 Our powerlessness was so obvious it was shameful to me. Norcross's sword jangled as he made his way to the frightened Miller. On my word, Miller, Norcross smiled. Only last week did you not have... Two sons. My son Matt has gone to Vaucluse, Georgia said, and looked towards me. To study the metal trade. The metal trade, Norcross nodded, bunching his lips. He smiled as if to say, I know that's a pile of shit. Georges was my friend. My heart went out to him. I thought about what weapons were at my end and how we could possibly fight these knights if we had to. And with your stronger son gone, Norcross pressed on, how will you continue to pay your tax to the Duke? Your labor now depleted by a third. George's eyes darted about. It will be made easily, my lord. I will work that much harder. That is good, Norcross nodded, stepping over to the boy. In that case, you won't be missing this one too much either, will you? 
In a flash, he hoisted the nine-year-old lad up like a sack of hay. He carried Aloe, kicking and screaming towards the mill. As Norcross passed the miller's cowering daughter, he winked at his men. I've decided halfway through, and I don't care. I've decided that I'm going to change that voice because I don't usually do voices. But I'm giving him a hottie voice. And I don't think he deserves a hottie voice. I didn't think he deserves a dark, rambling, brooding, evil, nasty voice. So I'm going to change, and I'm going to try a voice just this once. If it doesn't happen in the next book or in the next chapter, don't come after me. Don't send for me unless I call for you. Okay? <clears throat> As Norcross passed the miller's cowering daughter, he winked at his men. Feel free to help yourself to some of the miller's... Nah, that ain't working either. I'm just gonna talk like I talk. Feel free to help yourself to some of the miller's lovely grain. They grinned and dragged poor Amy, screaming wildly inside the mill. Disaster loomed in front of my eyes. Norcross took a hemp rope and, with the help of a cohort, lashed aloe to the staves of the mill's large wheel which dipped deep beneath the surface of the river. Georges threw himself at the chattelin's feet. Haven't I always been true to our Lord, Baldwin? Haven't I done what was expected? Feel free to take your appeal to his holiness, Norcross laughed, lashing the boy's wrists and ankles tightly to the water well. Father, father, the terrified aloe cried. Norcross began to turn the wheel. To George's and Marie's frantic shrieks, Aloe went under. Norcross held it for a moment, then slowly raised the wheel. The child appeared, wildly gasping for air. The despicable knight laughed at our priest. <laughs> what do you say, father? Is this what you expect from the Pope's protection? He lowered the wheel again and the small boy disappeared. Our entire town gasped in horror. I counted the thirty. Please, Marie begged on her knees. He's just a boy. Norcross finally began to raise the wheel. Alla was gagging and coughing water out of his lungs. From behind the mill's door came the sickening cries of Amy. I could scarcely breathe myself. I had to do something, even if it sealed my own fate. Sir, I stepped forward towards Norcross. I will help the miller increase his tax by a third. And who are you, Carrot Top? The glowering knight turned, fixed on my shock of bright red hair. Carrots, too, if my lord wants. I took another step. I was prepared to say anything, whatever gibberish might divert him. We'll throw in two bushels of carrots. I was about to go on. A joke, nonsense, anything that came into my head when one of the henchmen rushed up to me. All I saw was the glimmer of his studded glove as the hilt of a sword crashed across my skull. In my next breath, I was on the ground. Hugh! Hugh! I heard Sophie scream. Carrot Top here must be keen on the miller, Norcross jeered, or the miller's wife. By a third more, you say? Well, in my lord's name, I accept her offer. Consider your tax raised. At the same time, he lowered the wheel again. I heard a struggling, choking aloe go under one more time. Norcross shouted, If it's a fight you want, then fight for the glory of your liege when called upon. If it's riches, then attend harder to your work. But the laws of custom are the laws. You all understand the laws, do you not? Norcross leaned against the will for the longest time. An anguished plea rose from the crowd. Please let the boy up. Let him up. 
I clenched my fists, counting the beats that Alla remained under. Twenty. Thirty. Forty. Then Norcross's face split into an amused smile. Goodness. Do I forget the time? He slowly raised the wheel. When Aloe broke the surface, the boy's face was bloated and wide-eyed. His small jaw hung open, lifeless. Marie screamed and Georges began to sob. What a shame, Norcross sighed, leaving the wheel aloft and Aloe's lifeless body suspended high. It seems he wasn't cut out for the miller's life after all. A silence ensued, a terrible moment that was empty and gnawing. It was broken only by Amy's whimpers as she emerged weak-kneed from the mill. Let us go, Norcross gathered his knights. I think the Duke's point is adequately driven home. As he made his way back across the square, he stopped over me where I still lay and hovered. Then he pressed his heavy boot into my neck. Do not forget your pledge, Caratop. I'll be looking especially for your tax payment. Chapter 5 That terrible afternoon changed my life. That night, as Sophie and I lay in bed, I couldn't hold back the truth from her. She and I had always shared everything, good and bad. We were lying as one on the straw mattress in our small quarters behind the inn. I gently stroked her blonde hair, which fell all the way down her back. Every time she moved, every twitch of her nose reminded me of how much I loved her, how much I had since the first time I set eyes on her. It was love at first sight for us. At ten. I had spent my youth traveling with a band of interim goliards given to them at a young age when my mother died, the mistress of a cleric who could no longer hide in my presence. They raised me as one of their own, taught me Latin, grammar, logic, how to read and write. But most of all, they taught me how to perform. We traveled to large cathedral towns, Nimes, Cluny, Lapuy reciting our irreverent songs, tumbling and juggling for the crowds. Each summer, we passed through Vel de Père. I saw Sophie there at her father's inn, her shy blue eyes unable to hide from mine. And later, I noticed her peeking at a rehearsal. I was sure, at me. I swiped the sunflower and went up to her. What goes in all stiff and stout, but when it comes out, it's flopping about. She widened her eyes and blushed. How could anyone but a devil have such bright red hair, she said. Then she ran away. A cabbage, I was about to say. Also, how would a 10-year-old know that joke? You telling that joke to another 10-year-old, how would the other 10-year-old get it? Like, this ain't now. This ain't with the internet. This this ain't with all the stuff that's floating around. This is like 1098. How the hell y'all know that? Even earlier than 1098, this is like 10... 28, I don't know, I don't know, 1078, 1078, let's say 1078, how y'all know that, y'all nasty, nasty, nasty too, nasty, N-A-S-S-Y by the way, nasty, ugh, that's nasty, each year when we returned, I came bearing a sunflower, until Sophia grown from a gangly girl into the most beautiful woman I had ever seen, she had a song for me, a teasing rhyme, a maiden met a wandering man in the light of the moon's pure cheer, and though they fell in love at that first sight, it was a love that was born for tears. I called her my princess, and she said that I probably had one in every town, but in truth, I did not. 
Each year, I promised I would come back, and I always did. One year, I stayed. The three years we had been married had been the happiest I had known. I felt connected for the first time in my life, and deeply in love. But as I held Sophie that night, something told me I could no longer live like this. The rage that burned in my heart from the day's horror was killing me. There would always be another Norcross, another tax levied upon us, or another aloe. One day, the boy strung up on that wheel could be our own. Until we were free. Sophie, I have something important to talk to you about. I snuggled into the smooth curve of her back. She had nearly drifted off to sleep. Can't it wait, Hugh? What could be more important than what we just shared? I swallowed. Raymond of Toulouse is forming an army. Paul the Carter told me. They leave for the Holy Land in a few days. Sophie turned in my arms and faced me with a blank, unsure look. I have to go, I said. Sophie sat up, almost dumbfounded. You want to take the cross? Not the cross. I wouldn't fight for that, but Raymond has promised freedom to anyone who joins. Freedom, Sophie. You saw what happened today. She sat up straight. I did see, Hugh, and I saw that Baldwin will never free you from your pledge or any of us. In this, he has no choice, I protested. Raymond and Baldwin are aligned. He has to accept. Sophie, think of how our lives could change. Who knows what I might find there? There are tales of riches just for the taking and holy relics worth more than a thousand ends like ours. You're leaving, she said, turning her eyes from me, because I have not given you a child. I am not. You mustn't think that, not even for a moment. I love you more than anything. When I see you each day working around the inn or even amid the grease and smoke of the kitchen, I thank God for how lucky I am. We're meant to be together. I'll be back before you know it. She nodded, unconvinced. You're no soldier, Hugh. You could die. I'm strong and agile. No one around can do the tricks I do. No one wants to hear your silly jokes, Hugh, Sophie sniffed, except me. Then I'll scare the infidels off with my bright red hair. I saw the outline of a smile from her. I held her by the shoulders and looked into her eyes. I'll be back. I swear it, just like when we were children. I always told you I'd return, and I always did. She nodded, a bit reluctantly. I could see she was scared, but so was I. I held her and stroked her hair. Sophie lifted her head and kissed me, a mixture of ardor and tears. A stirring rose in me. I couldn't hold it down. I could see in Sophie's eyes she felt it too. I held her by the waist, and she moved on top of me. Her legs parted, and I gently eased myself inside. My body lit with her warmth. My Sophie, I whispered. She moved with me in perfect rhythm, softly moaning with pleasure and love. How could I leave her? How could I be such a fool? You'll come back, Hugh. Her eyes locked on mine. I swear. I reached and wiped a glistening tear from her eye. Who knows? I smiled. Maybe I'll come back at night with unknown treasure and fame. My knight, she whispered, and I, your queen. Chapter 6. The morning of the day I was to leave was bright and clear. I rose early, even before the sun. 
The town had bid me Godspeed with a festive roast the night before. All the toasts had been made and farewell said. All but one. In the doorway of the inn, Sophie handed me my pouch. In it was a change of clothes, bread to eat, a hazel twig to clean my teeth. It may be cold, she said. You have to cross the mountains. Let me get your skin. I stopped her. Sophie, it's summer. I'll need it more when I come back. Then I should pack some more food for you. I'll find food. I pumped out my chest. People will be eager to feed a crusader. She stopped and smiled at my plain flax tunic and calfskin vest. You don't look like much of a crusader. I stood before her, ready to leave, and smiled too. There's one more thing, Sophie said with a start. She hurried to the table by the hearth. She came back a moment later with her treasure comb, a thin band of beechwood painted with flowers. It had belonged to her mother. Other than the inn, I knew she valued it more than anything in her life. Take this with you, Hugh. Thanks, I tried to joke. But where I'm headed, a woman's comb may be looked at strangely. Where you're headed, my love, you'll need it all the more. To my surprise, she snapped her prize comb in two. She handed half to me. Then she held her half out until we touched the jagged edge together, neatly fitting it back into a hole. I never thought I would ever say goodbye to you, she whispered, doing her best not to cry. I thought we would live out our lives together. We will, I said. See? One more time, we fitted the combs half together and made a hole. I drew Sophie close and kissed her. I felt her thin body tremble in my arms. I knew she was trying to be brave. There was nothing more to say. So, I took a breath and smiled. We looked at each other for a long while. Then I remembered my own gift. From my vest pocket, I took out a small sunflower. I had gone into the hills to pick it early that morning. I'll be back, Sophie, to pick sunflowers for you. She took it. Her bright blue eyes were moist with tears. I threw my pouch over my shoulder and tried to drink in the last sight of her beautiful, glistening eyes. I love you, Sophie. I love you too, Hugh. I can't wait for my next sunflower. I started towards the road, west to Toulouse. At the stone bridge on the edge of town, I turned and took a long last look at the inn. It had been my home for the past three years. The happiest days of my life. I gave a last wave to Sophie. She stood there, holding the sunflower, and reached out the jagged edge of her comb one more time. Then I did a little hop, like a jig, to break the mood and started to walk, spinning around a final time to catch her laugh. Her golden hair down to her waist. That brave smile. Her tinkling little girl laugh. It was the image I carried for the next two years. 916 633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on uh, Spotify It takes like 8 seconds You just tap the button And then put 5 stars and that's it uh, You could also leave a review on Podchaser And copy and paste that into Good Pods uh, And then copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts um, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. This book. 
<sighs> Y'all are in for it. Y'all be good. I'm out you later. Peace. to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you slipped.